Welcome to What's Korean Cinema episode 9 on the flower in hell and save the green planet and we're utilizing the opportunity to mix the important obscure favorite and known Korean cinema in the eyes of the general audience and that's how you create an interesting podcast for you as a creator and an approachable one for all hopefully so with me Kennedy is as always when I do this uh, Hangul Celluloids Paul Quinn so say hi buddy good evening and uh, as always again, Rufus Ram of Sin Awesome and the operations manager of the New York Asian Film Festival is here again. Hello, hello. Uh, many titles. Do, can you fit that on a business card? Uh, kind of. They're very small. <laughs> very small print. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we'll uh, we are talking. I mean, the titles are familiar to some of you, but we are talking specifically to explain Shin Sang-ok's acclaimed black and white drama The Flower in Hell from 1958 and Jang Jun-hwan's again, Korean names but, you you know (laughs) we're talking his debut movie his fan but not cinema audience uh, favorite Save the Green Planet from 2003 so um, that's your mix for you You something really old but iconic and something uh, 10 years old at the time of recording uh, but iconic in its own way uh, so uh, we'll uh, get into the meet of it all after the contact information. This is What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire network website for this show and the bonus episodes, podcastonfire.com. Email for feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. We are on Facebook in two ways. Click uh, click and like our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. Join the discussion group where you find show updates and chat between uh, members and what have you. You can reach that by clicking the link on the page I just described or type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar and I'll get you the group. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash so good. Uh, sorry, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. It's not my turn yet. Now it's my turn to plug my stuff. I write about Hong Kong movies and Taiwanese movies at so goodreviews.com and I do video reviews at sleazykvideo.com. Your category free movies, ninja exploitation, and Taiwanese black movies. Sometimes Taiwanese black movies in ninja exploitation, if you will. Richard Harrison and a Taiwan movie uh, walking side by side, so to say. Excellent stuff. And uh, I am also on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash so good reviews. Subscribe to What's Korean Cinema on iTunes. And if you like the show, please leave it a little star rating and a written comment if you have the time. And you can also stream us on Stitcher Radio, application uh, available for the various smart devices, smartphone devices, uh, Android, iPad, iPad, iPhone, and Blackberry, I believe. And uh, once you're in Stitcher, you have to type in specifically nowadays what's Korean cinema, and that will get you the option to add the show to uh, your favorites. So thank you for, for the support uh, via iTunes and Stitcher. Rufus, Cine Awesome is one of your uh, big endeavors nowadays. So what is there to say in general in short about Cine Awesome? Uh, so Cine Awesome is the blog arm of Subway Cinema who runs New York Asian Film Festival. And we are currently revitalizing behind the scenes uh, to turn it into a quarterly journal slash magazine. And the blog is going to start focusing on New York-based screening, independent film, Asian cinema, and whatnot. Uh, we also do a podcast, uh, season two. Last time I think I was on your show, I said season two was starting, but that was a lie because uh, I got too busy to You're edit. Lying to us, Rufus. Yes, sorry. Season two has three episodes in the can. I just have to edit them and put them out. Um, so they should be out hopefully within the next couple weeks. Um, and that's an awesome. 
Right on, and over to you, Paul Hangal Celluloid. What's uh, yep. what's, called, what's, uh, what's the URL and what's uh, how, how do you sell Hangal Celluloid to a new audience, if you will? Sales sales I, pitch time, baby. Yeah, well, you know, Hangal Celluloid's me, really. Um, I I focus more than anything else, I guess, on interviews, director, cast, crew, um, review sort of the same things you guys on podcasts try and do, sort of old and iconic mixed with new and you know, maybe not even so good. Um, hmm. I write for a couple of magazines and just everything I do is me and, and my little obsessions. And At the minute I'm obsessed with depictions of women in Korean cinema, so when I got the chance to talk about The Flower in Hell you just think, oh yeah, there's going to be a lot of rent in there. Um, so that's me, you know. Um, Sounded vaguely sleazy, but it isn't. <laughs> I am well, obsessed yeah. with women in Korean cinema. <laughs> in hindsight, it does sound dodgy. But well, I'm well, not I, it I, I approve fully, my friends, so don't worry Thank about that. Uh, okay, a rundown of what to expect in this show. First, we'll discuss The Flower in Hell, uh, and uh, we'll discuss a little bit of background on director Shin Sang-ok, a little bit of repeat of um, part of his biography that we also did on the uh, Yongari Pulgasari episode. Uh, after that will be the review and discussion of the movie, which will be non-spoiler for your information. It will be a break, and then we do a background on Save the Green Planet, its director, and after that, the movie uh, movie review and discussion. That will not be spoiler-free f- uh, spoiler in comparison, but all spoilers will be talked of after the end music of the show. So fear not, you will not encounter the big, 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 big spoilers of the movie during the main discussion. It will all come after the fact. And uh, these segments will also... Uh, be uh, the running times of each segment will be written out in the show post and description if you want to fa- fast forward to uh, to um, to, re- to the review immediately if you will. Uh, so let's hit it. The Flower in Hell from 1958 in in Korea Korean. Let's make a full. Uh, I'm gonna make a full out myself. It seems simple enough, but the Korean title is Jokwa, Jokwa. Pretty good. Okay, (laughs) 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 which literally means flower in hell apparently so there you go Uh, plot from wikipedia a young man called Dong Sik played by Joe Hai Won comes to Seoul from the country in search of his older brother Yong Sik played by Kim Hak Um, um, by the way I'm uh, I'm not too sure if I actually wrote out the entire name of uh, that actor by the way oh it is Kim Hak I, I was really confused because isn't it usually three kind of syllables but no uh, not not always, and sometimes the, sometimes you get a last name with two syllables and a first name with one, and then it gets very confusing. All right, so the older brother Young Sik is played by Kim Hak, who turns out to be uh, making a living with a group of thieves who boost their goods from the U.S. Army base and sell them on the black market. Both brothers become romantically involved with the same prostitute, Sonia, played by Choi Hyun Hae, and uh, this has been quoted as being a. Uh, an imminent critique of the First Order and a sizzling pot boiler to boot. And uh, we'll talk of, um, you know, the main critique of the film, obviously, in our discussion and its place in Korean cinema movie history and uh, how it kind of uh, attaches to reality, if you will. And um, But, but uh, after all, it, it is a fictional uh, fictional film with uh, you know, a, a documentary approach, partly. But uh, all of that will, will be clear. But again, uh, we talked of director-producer Shin Sang-ok's uh, 
biography fairly extensively during our Korean kaiju podcast. Uh, we will we'll only go through a little bit of it uh, now. Uh, and all the, that podcast uh, was focused uh, primarily on his uh, movie Pulgasari uh, when he was uh, in the clutches of Kim Jong Il, willingly or not, uh, in, in the 80s. Uh, but uh, prior to that, he was acclaimed and prolific and called an icon in this golden age of South Korean cinema in the 50s and 60s and his Shin Film Studios was referred to at one point as half of the Korean film industry. So uh, again, uh, rather than going over his bio again, we'll refret part of that. And uh, he studied abroad in Japan before returning to Korea and got his start in the film industry as an assistant production designer on Viva Freedom from 1946 which was apparently the first Korean film made after the country achieved independence from Japan. And Shin was an active filmmaker during what's referred to as the golden age of South Korean cinema in the 50s and 60s, often releasing multiple movies per year and earning the nickname Prince of Korean cinema. And his production company Shin Films was prolific as well, producing uh, producing uh, movies that he didn't direct, uh, such as... Uh, Prince Yonsan in 1961, which was the winner of the Best Film Prize at the first Grand Bell Awards ceremony. And they also produced a Grand Bell Award-winning 1964 remake of uh, Na Won-gyu's 1926 movie that has doesn't have an English title, so I'm not going <laughs> to try and, try and uh, uh, pronounce that. Uh, such a, if you guys have the outline in front of you, uh, can, can can any of you try and read that 1926 yeah, uh, title? Yeah, that that's Byungoli Samyong. It's a uh, deaf Samyong is the 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 translation. So Samyong is like the guy's name, and then it's deaf, like Byungoli is like deaf. Excellent. That's why I have Korean cinema gurus on this show too. To, to help me out uh, and make me uh, make me appear less of a fool, but uh, that's okay. Uh, he became less and less active in the 70s as uh, South Korea's film industry battled with strict censorship and government interference, and uh, Shin mostly produced uh, flops in the studio. And uh, after Shin ran afoul of the repressive government in 1978, Shin's studio was actually closed. And then the involuntary North Korean period started, and eventually a U.S. Korea after all of that was done as uh, as Simon Sheen. Shin Sanok became Simon Sheen uh, before returning to Korea where he, uh, he he passed away in his uh, native country and all of that. Before the full history on Shin Sanok and the theories of whether or not uh, he was in the clutches willingly or not of uh, Kim Jong-il, we'll uh, link to the Korean cinema special that we did on uh, Yongari and Pulgasari. So. Uh, but that's the that's the bio I thought was suitable. So, in your words, guys, uh, what what do you want to say about Shin Sang Ok's importance in South Korea and even North Korean cinema? Is it essentially a figure to keep track of? So, if we start with you, Paul, uh, what's your thoughts on on that subject? From my point of view, yeah, um, you know, you talk about Korean cinema over the years, you cannot not talk about Shin Sang Ok. Uh, he everything he did stands when it was made and it still stands today later on when, when we start talking about you know scenes and stuff in The Flower and Hell I was watching Confession of Murder which is you know 2013 a couple of weeks ago and there, there's a scene in that that just made me think that's that's Flower and Hell you know I mean he's just and a lot of that may be in my own head but he's so iconic that 
he just keeps coming back to your mind. You see one of his films, it hangs with you, and, and scenes within his stuff have been used in so many other films throughout the years. He's he's so important. Um, and in terms of North Korean cinema, whether it was his period was involuntary or not, I actually interviewed a North Korean defector last month, and I asked him about Shinsano, and you know he 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 ranted for half an hour about how important he was, how they saw a window onto the outside world because of what he did, um, and it, it just goes to, to say the same thing. Shinsano for a, for a period was Korean cinema, full style. Right on. If I move over to you, Rook, as well, what's your spontaneous words on um, on the guy? I mean, he's a, he's a master. He like uh, there's a handful of Korean, you know, Shin Sang Ok, Kim Ki Young, Im Kwon Tek, like uh, that just totally defined post-war Korean cinema. Um, absolutely influential to modern day filmmakers, and I agree about Confession of Murder. <laughs> Thank you know. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of modern films that like take shots from Shin Sang Ok film, you know, just compositionally, whether consciously or subconsciously, you know. Yeah, absolutely, I I agree with Paul, and yeah, there's if you can't, yeah, you cannot, you know, overlook him when talking about Korean film. Period. Yeah. He's absolutely essential. And uh, I guess uh, having picked this movie, I mean, it's uh, kind of clear that both of you are, you know, admirers of the film. You have vocally said it before, so, so I mean, we we can we, we we can talk of the movie as a key movie, and therefore a key movie means it's uh, when listeners hear this that it's probably a great movie. So, but but the question remains: What made this movie Flower in Hell significant and and a key movie in his filmography? And is this him at the top of his game as kind of a social commentator and? And as a technical filmmaker and a suspense filmmaker, or is this just part of a massive, like, great whole? So, so if we go with you again, Paul. From my point of view, this is Shinsano at his at his peak. You know, I, there's a lot of films that of his that I love that are iconic, but Flower and Hell is so important. It, it all, almost outstrips the rest. From from the point of view, I, I know we'll talk about it later, but that whole thing of women in Korean cinema, the, the fact that Che Yuni throughout the film is seeking pleasure. She's doing things to make money, but she's getting her own thing out of it at the same time and enjoying every second of it. She smiles through three quarters of the whole film and it sort of hadn't been done before that they'd had evil women, seductresses vengeful self-serving females but none this vocally into what they're doing and characters who don't change through the film it, it so stands out from the crowd that, that it sort of it did a huge shift, and if you look at the films that came after it, they took Flower and Hell, and they took it further. There's a film, well, I guess that can bring in the housemaid a couple of years later, that just uses the whole femme fatale revenge thing, and it, and it has elements, but it's not as strong as Flower and Hell. And if you look at films like Madame Freedom from the same period, it, it looks at the whole black market but it's from 
a different point of view. It's 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 nice people that are corrupted and then become okay again. Whereas Flower in Hell, she she's she's not a nice woman. She's out for what she can get and she's loving every second of it. It's I rewatched this last night, he said, going on and on and on. And it just occurred to me, after I've not seen it for a number of years, that if I was Kim Jong-il, I'd be watching this and thinking... Get in. A lot. Yeah, well, yeah, you really would. But because it sort of... It almost says, this is the Western world. This is what the Western world's become. This is what women are becoming in the Western thing. And it's not necessarily a good thing. And it almost looks like Shinsan Oak's saying you know what, communism's right, this is bad. And I just, I, I, you could almost imagine Kim Jong-il getting on the phone and going, yeah, get it, bring him over now, because he's, 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 on, he's on the level, he knows what he's talking about. Um, it, it's so important, and I'm going to shut up and let Rufus do a bit of talking before I right. take over completely. Uh, <laughs> I, I just have a question in between. Was uh, uh, Choi Chin uh, sang wife at this time as well? Or were they married later? Um, they actually married later, I think, as far as I know. Um, but at this stage, she was already working on lots of his films as a really sweet, wholesome, demure character. And she was seen like that in her private life as well. In this, she's, she's quite something different. And I, from what I can gather it was seen as very, very shocking in terms of her persona in the film, her character's persona. Right on. So, if we move over to you, Rufus, um, what's your take on this? I mean, this is one of those... I saw this film for the first time um, in 2004 or five when Lincoln Center had this huge Korean film... New Dragon Rising retrospective where they showed like a hundred Korean films and I've talked about this many times before but I took two weeks of school off and I just told all my teachers you know screw you I'm going to go watch Korean film Uh, and I got a ticket to every single film and I remember sitting in the theater and at first I was like well this movie looks good but you know it's kind of the same you know uh Yang Gongju, like the Western princess, like morality tale, for like the the beginning of it, and then I was like, but wait, like Paul said, she's enjoying it, and she's actually kind of in charge of her own life, so it's not really the same, and she's not being punished for being a prostitute. Everyone treats her normally, like through the whole movie. You know, the only th- thing when she that she transgresses is the love between two brothers. Hmm. And then she gets punished or whatnot, you know, and that like, but but being a prostitute's fine within this world of the film. And then we got to like the the final like chase sequence and sort of the famous final sequence in the mud at the end. And I was just like blown away, and I was like, what the hell is this? Um, It's rather amazing that that um, maybe going in cold, uh, you can still kind of sense that this is. You know, above uh, above you know average or above uh, many filmmakers of the time. I mean, it's yeah. still. Uh, I mean, I I had to do a little bit of reading in terms of uh, what to expect from it, uh, but I still got uh, an impact, even if I will never understand uh, the impact. 
We'll yeah, and, and I mean, this is like this is one of those things where I wish, like, for instance, the Evil Knight, which was his sort of first film, was still ex- in existence, but it's one of the lost films. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of those films he had started. Uh, then the war broke out, and then he finished it after the war, but it no longer exists. But it had a supposedly, I think, had a similar structure of uh, prostitution and um, American GIs, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it, like, I think it like it's supposed. I think it like calls back to like the comfort women issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which was when J- Japanese soldiers uh, forced Korean women into sexual slavery for the army. So, and uh, um, I'm sure we'll touch upon this uh, throughout the discussion. But uh, you know, in, in general, you, you mentioned guys that this um, depiction of uh, women was uh, not the norm at all. You know, especially with uh, leading actors. You know, so w- w- was this a totally new original thing, or had there been like sprinkles of? you know a female depiction that challenged you know the norm uh, because i guess the norm was that they were kind of homely and ordinary maybe dancing distressed kind of characters so uh, um what what is the brief to say about that that female depiction history if you will if we go back to you paul um there there were films before that dealt with women in korean cinema as almost loose cannons um, I recently actually saw a, a 1936 film called Sweet Dream, uh, I think we talked about it briefly when we were sort of preparing for this um, that deals with an evil woman and it was the first real depiction of a woman as evil and she's self-serving and she she pays no attention to her family she's an adulteress but the whole way through you can see her changing and at the very end in case I spoil the film for the rest of you, at the very end, she decides she suddenly realizes what she's done, what she's done to her family, how she's destroyed her family, and how she's become Western, and she takes efforts to sort that out, I guess. Um, but this, flower, The Flower in Hell, it, it's just, you know, Choi Yunis' character does not change through the entire film to the very end and she doesn't repent specifically she's she's loving it she she is providing a service that people want and it makes her feel wanted um, and the other side of, of that is this black market thing the depictions of women previous to this as you know purveyors of the black market people that that made money or that were obsessed by western things were all middle class all the characters in this are utterly poor and that that was never seen before as far as I'm aware um, so yeah this is on every level this is just stand out not been done like this before anything else you want to add there in terms of uh, in, uh, within this aspect uh, Rufus yeah I mean I think that I think that the this, this is sort of like this was a big issue also during the colonialization period where Japan as a like controlling Korea was trying to modernize Korea so you had this depiction of women in western clothes as sort of this this sort of nefarious modern woman this modern girl you know um 
and like you did see that in Mimong, the sweet dream uh and like you you see it in literature and you see it in in other films along the time and it it keeps going to like post-war where for instance like uh, uh hand of fate which was made in 1954 was like the first on-screen kiss and that was very very controversial because it was this sort of femme fatale woman who's really a north korean spy mm. you know tricking you know the the main character you know and and before it's like in almost all of these even like madam freedom you know which was 2 years before flower and hell 1956 like all of these were like you know, if, if you were watching a Korean melodrama, because right at this point, about 70 to 75 percent of all Korean films in this period were melodramas. You know, like you started to see other genres mixing in, like in in uh, uh, in Flower and Hell, there's crime film mixing in with the melodrama. But you started to see like, you know, but if you were watching a melodrama and there is a woman wearing Western dress she was either a prostitute or she was like evil and by the end of the movie she's either committed suicide been murdered or repented and all of a sudden wearing Korean dress you know and you see it even through the 60s and 70s they're, the same cal- thing. they're very calculated which I guess yeah. gets uh, quite tiresome um, you know 10-20 movies in Yes. I mean, you see, and then, like, you know, there's always films like, you know, uh, uh, Aimless Bullet, where, you know, there's characters that are, you know, it's a more realistic look like this. This one is very almost a pseudo-documentary of life around a U.S. Army base. And it's still somewhat like this. There's still prostitution. There's still a lot of black market sort of things that spring up around army bases not only in korea all over the world mm. you know and it's 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 really a base of survival like these people are so poor in the post-war they're so poor that they can't do anything but latch themselves onto the military in order to survive indeed uh, okay on availability actually flower and hell was uh, correct me if i'm wrong on this i think i heard it when we discussed um, korean film archive box sets before the it was available on DVD once as part of expensive box sets that are now rare, but uh, that, that's no worry um, anymore because now you can watch it for free on YouTube with optional English subtitles courtesy of the Korean Film Archive's own YouTube channel, which has been uh, online now for online now for for over a year. So, which is uh, a fantastic initiative, and uh, it uh, was fantastic when it started, and it seems like um, it's uh, still going strong, and uh, the, the service can be up without uh, them leaking money <laughs> by putting them up for free. So, so you know, anything in general you want to express about this venture a year or so into it, guys? So, if we start with you, you again, Paul, is it a wet dream br- browsing the Korean film archive? Totally, totally. Um, it's it's phenomenal. It's just it, it's so useful from my point of view and from anybody who is interested in Korean cinema of today. Um, that the film that we both talked about, Mimong, Sweet Dream, um, was screened recently by the Korean Cultural Center, and there were only what forty seats available because they screened it downstairs, and there were a lot of people that couldn't get in, and you know. It would almost make you cry if you couldn't see something that rare. Two weeks later, it's on 
the Korean Film Archive YouTube channel, and you just think that is so, so cool. Where else are you going to see this stuff? Um, phenomenal. I, I adore it. I'm on it far more than I should be, <laughs> um, sitting with my feet up watching stuff, and it, it, it works like a charm. It's, it's great. Over to you, Rufus. Yeah, I mean, I... Like I said uh, before, for the uh, like when I when I watched this movie the first time, I took two weeks of school off because I knew, or I had thought that this was the only time I would ever get to see some of these films. And for a vast majority, they're still impossible to screen unless you go to Korea and have a researching pass and can get Korean Film Archive to screen it for you, you know. But after, like, this year, I'm just so hopeful that, you know, <laughs> they keep putting this stuff out, you know? And I know, like, the Kofa is currently working on the, another Shin Sung-ok movie, which uh, is The Red Scarf from 1964, which is a big, like, jet... Fo- Korean Air Force Top Gun, you know, melodrama. <laughs> right. <on. laughs> uh, which they've cobbled together from various pieces, including I was talking to someone at Pusan this year. Uh, one of the pieces was, like, found in customs in Japan that had been sitting in customs for, like, 25 years, and no one had ever checked it. And they found it. It was, like, a piece, like, a lost reel of this film, you know? So all of these movies, you always, like... You know, when I first started watching Korean film... There's no opportunity to see these. And now I can be like, oh yeah, there's this great movie, Flower in Hell, you need to see it, and here's the YouTube link. You have no excuse, you know. And granted, some of the subtitles are a little wonky. For for this one, perfectly fine, though. So it's not like it's a a Google Little Translate or anything. No, I mean, they do do a good job. I mean, when I say wonky is that every once in a while they'll skip over a couple lines that right, will not okay. be translated or whatever. And then uh, also, you know, watching on YouTube is not the greatest way to watch a film, but it's amazing that this is even an opportunity. And I'm so happy as an archivist that an archive has embraced freely giving away films mm-hmm. and full feature films uh, and not worrying about copyright or making f- money or anything like that. Yeah, I think it's amazing. So it's time to discuss a little bit more in, in a review style, discussion style, uh, the movie Flower in Hell. And uh, we'll do some, even though we've stated kind of opinions uh, before, but let, let's do, just do some mini opinions first, a quick uh, bite-sized opinion of the movie movie first. And uh, let me start, uh, because I'm, I'm the, I, I guess I'm the freshest viewer of this. Uh, it's, um, it's a very good film. It's low-key, to the point, quiet maybe even realistic and it's a heist thriller and drama that manages to you know strike up you know fine tension and be a very exciting triangle drama using very little means seemingly but obviously it takes a great mind to stage all this so uh, highly highly approved uh paul in bite-sized form please if you can (laughs) i don't don't know if i can um iconic important for anyone who likes Korean cinema whether you know a lot about Korean cinema or you know nothing, Shin San-ok flag every theme that he wants to talk about really clearly 
but never overstates it. Um, works from a documentary point of view, works from a fictional point of view, works from a thematic point of view. Phenomenal movie. Good, good, good. And about what about you, Rufus and Schultz? If, if you're a film fan at all, you need to see this. That's it. Indeed. You're, <laughs> wow. indeed you're... You know, it's one of the best movies from the golden age of Korea. It's only an hour and a half long. It moves quickly. It looks amazing. He shot it on a borrowed, broken camera. And, yeah, if you like film, you need to see this. Indeed. And, uh, I, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge, I suppose. Uh, it's great to recommend the movies and to unsuspecting viewers and young viewers and old viewers. And it's a challenge in a way, though, which I'm hoping many will take when, when and if they see this on YouTube. Because it's made several decades ago. It's from a film industry and an, an era of film that wasn't about the whooshy noises and style. Uh, and it does come off as rather quiet, uh, which is not a bad thing. And, and you know, uh, I would love to experiment with, with a young audience to, to see if someone has their socks blown off, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, regardless, it's quite nature and documentary nature is super evident early. And it's a very matter of fact, which I love throughout, and and uh, and, and realistic. I I, I gather. I mean, and none of this seems very overblown, you know. And um, and and that is so evident early that you you find yourself feeling a confidence and uh, feeling that you're in assured hands, uh, you, you know, from scene one that this is, uh, you know, we're, he's going to take us some somewhere real and somewhere dramatic here, and uh, and. You also realize that his chin's direction and story is about raising the stakes and tension, which is uh, uh, done excellent throughout. Uh, in a, you know, it's the second time I watched this. I watched it for research first, first, so I knew about the movie. But the, uh, the second time was uh, even better, even knowing uh, the drama in and out. So, um, the, uh, and uh, I don't know if this is a case of movies back then, but uh, regardless, uh, the movie opens immediately and I think the movie is not even one minute old before we know the kind of stakes of this world because what happens with uh, the main character he gets robbed and he tries to do something about it and it seems rather feeble to even do something about it uh, so um, I mean it's uh, that thread is established so early so isn't that refreshing I suppose it's my, it's my question to you guys if we start with uh, you Paul that uh, a movie just you know, here's the cards uh, that we're going to play for 90 minutes before you, so, you know. Again, it's it's completely Shinsano. He just, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to say. He doesn't need to build up for three quarters of an hour and then suddenly switch things on, which mm. a lot of recent Korean films, you know, obviously do. You look at the clock and one hour passes and bang, the film actually kicks in. Um, it's just it's classic golden age film, and it, it's it's kind of it's great though that uh, the character of uh, Dong Shik is this untainted character. He appears as a as a, as a hick to everyone, even though poorer characters, seemingly poorer, more worn characters, actually say that to him. But he's he, you know he doesn't look like a hick. He doesn't look like a bum or anything. But he stands yeah. out, you know, like a sore thumb. And um, and it's kind of sad throughout, without spoiling anything, that the adjustment characters have to make and have made before the movie even starts is that you have to go down this criminal, decadent, you know, low lifestyle even uh, because wages are down and prices are up, as the characters say. And uh, and and I suppose this is 
uh, would you say this is a realistic realistic glimpse to to a degree, Rufus, uh, into life in post-war Korea? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is I mean, post-war Korea, South Korea, the North Korea was better off. They had functioning electricity, they had factories, they had, you know, and South Korea was basically a giant shithole that had been destroyed from war and the US was trying desperately to control it. Uh, and, you know, politically it was kind of on a tinderbox and there was a lot of poverty, a lot of displaced people, displaced families, people were struggling to survive. Um, I think between this movie and uh, Aimless Bullet are two of the best, like, depictions of post-war Korea, you know? And uh, this depiction is added upon because the movie has a documentary approach. Uh, literally, I mean, the, uh, throughout the movie we got uh, non-staged shots of life, in uh, if they're shot in Seoul or what have you, but uh, uh, life as uh, you, you got uh, American soldiers interacting with, uh, with the locals and the women. And uh, I, I don't... How, what was the story here? What, what, was this... Uh, done out of sort of a necessity to just get footage by shooting shooting a documentary style because I remember there was some story about the camera was breaking and Shin sang was forced to kind of employ some tricks to get some footage uh, footage done or, or what was the actual story of uh, the, um, the broken camera if uh, who wants to tell the major story <laughs> pretty much he, he as Rufus said earlier he, he borrowed a camera to do the filming it just kept breaking down and breaking down and breaking down which I, I guess, if you if you watch through, there are a lot of scenes that sort of do their little thing, and then they just very quickly fade to black and move on to the next one. And that, from my point of view, adds to the documentary feel. And you just think, you know, it, it's gone wrong just after that. But yeah, yeah, because maybe you had to shoot some footage really quickly, just pointed at life for a bit and hope the camera doesn't break. I think so, you know? but I, I just get the feeling that he knew exactly what he was doing as well. I mean, those first scenes, really, if you, if you didn't know it was a fictional film, you'd think that was documentary footage you, that was just grabbed from somewhere else rather than being made for Flower and Hell. Um, mm. I, I think Shinsano knew exactly what he was doing and he wanted a documentary feel, and the fact that the camera kept breaking almost helped his cause inadvertently. It's a seamless uh, transition between, so, so to say, the fictional stuff and the non-fictional mm. stuff, uh, and uh, it, it's of course a heist movie as well. Uh, you know, uh, so it's recognizable uh, in you know in the Western view uh, too, because uh, you know the guys are gathered up and a plan is hatched, and it's uh, it turns out to be uh, one of the characters wants it to, to be his last job before retiring, if you will. Young uh, Chick uh, dreams of leaving with Sonia after this big, big, big job that is coming up. So. It's uh, it's uh, very alluring and uh, but it's also throughout as I, I go on on and on about that, that low key matter of fact approach is um, is works all 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 throughout. So um, uh, so I, I I guess discussion point and a question for me is uh, it, this has you know, obviously a setting of uh, it's a horse village you know Yankee horse village where you know. The customers were U.S. soldiers, and the Koreans in turn steal from the U.S. So, it, I don't know if it's easy to put yourself in the minds of uh, Korean viewers, but uh, would you think that would have, you know, huge impact dramatically to see such a slice of life uh, that you know it goes on 
you know outside the cinema may, maybe right now uh, would you think this is um, would be um I don't know, uh, mind-blowing and kind of shocking to see on screen as well. Uh, so if we go, if we go back to you, Paul, in terms of that subject of uh, Yankee horse and uh, U.S. soldiers and whatever. I mean, from the perspective of post-war Korean people, I, I can only guess, but I would assume that they they were aware the black market was there. They were aware what was going going on they were they were aware of, of where things sometimes came from and that things were stolen from here there and everywhere um i think it was probably quite shocking that it was seen on the screen but yeah because it's not a kind uh, portrayal was, no, certainly no, not um but you know at the time as rufa said earlier on south korea was i think used the term shithole and it sort of sums it up um the people were so completely and utterly poor that they had no option, and seeing, knowing that things like this were being depicted on screen is bound to have been almost a lift for them because it hadn't been talked about before. All the films we've mentioned previously were all middle-class people, rich people, that that were embracing to some degree sort of westernization. That it, it wasn't people struggling to survive, and I think it was quite brave of Shinsano to do that and I think people would have responded to it and speaking of responding again to touch upon Lee the Choi in here I've written award winning performance I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if this was the actual award winning performance or not but uh, regardless I mean uh, the, the the term shocking I think is not is very apt uh, I can sense that as you know from scene one these actors that the audiences were used to doing other stuff you see her first scene is her in the aftermath of this paid encounter with a US soldier, you know, and uh, and it doesn't stop. It's kind of a relentless performance and character arc, uh, uh, especially now during my second viewing. It's just like, this is, uh, you know, a, a, a freight train that uh, is never going to stop, it seems. Like, there's no remorse at all on screen, as we've mentioned. So... Is you know again spontaneously Rufus? So uh, is this um did, is it impactful this performance every time you see the movie from I, her? I mean absolutely. I think I think every every time I see this movie is sort of like I'm seeing new bits or appreciating it in new ways. And her performance is one of the highlights. I think I mean, she's a great actress. Period. But this mm. I mean this performance was just like absolutely stunning. Um. Like the energy and like how she moves through the scenes and her constant gum chewing, I thought was a really interesting like touch. You know, like every time she's in a scene, she's chewing gum, she's smiling, she's smirking. She just doesn't give two shits about anything. And she she she's so she's flirtatious in front of, uh, in front of her, you know, her husband, if you will, young chick. She's literally flirts with uh, with the brother and doesn't care at all if that is visible or not. And uh, and she can deflect him very easily, you know, because he constantly say like, you know, go away with me, run away with me, and she's not threatened at all by Young Shik. You know, she's she's uh, she's uh, manipulating the situation. He's a classic femme fatale in that regard, and and um, you know, it, it becomes really like borderline disturbing even when she starts to you know you know have a grip on the younger brother as well, uh, and starts to you know pull him closer to her and into his grip uh, in order to for whatever reason kicks 
disrupt this uh, you know the so-called romance from before you know just to see shit go down uh, it, it literally seems like that there's no huge reason for her to um, to like engage in another romance just this is what I'm doing right now let's have fun with that uh, and it's, um, it's it's quite fearful at the same time too you know what I mean uh, but then you have Judy, uh, the other prostitute that um, you know is uh, not enjoying this situation. I, I really liked her little speech about we either you know we either prostitutes. Well, she, she's a prostitute now and she's making money. But what good is that when I'm not marriage material? She literally says that, which I took as um, something she uh, would think is a given in the eyes of her family that uh, or it's or it's a sort of a societal thing that uh, prostitute doesn't make for you know marriage material that's uh, you know got bad news written all over it which is a relief then when her and Dong Shik um, kind of connects as two I don't know slightly untainted characters they, they connect and they seem like uh, he, has, he has the light of the movie a little bit they, they, it seems like hope will uh, will happen you know uh, Within these characters, via these characters, um, so, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, contrast to um, to uh, Sonia, obviously uh, Judy, and uh, that actress. I mean, uh, uh, not only does she look great, but I thought they cast and uh, I don't know made her up and clothed her in a way that works so perfectly. In a way, uh, when you contrast her with Sonia, you know, because she's such a sweet girl, and Sonia is, you know, uh, the femme fatale and danger on two legs, if you will. So but I, I definitely like that uh, uh, Judy character, if you will. Um, I don't know, I'm looking at my notes here. We've gone through a whole lot of uh, things that, that Sonia is, in, uh, is indifferent for the movie. So, I don't know, uh, an, an aspect of uh, music. Uh, there's barely any, barely any in the movie. And yet, it's quite a tense movie. Even, uh, even in the heist sequence, I don't think there's any music. So... Uh, do do you think it works without it, Paul? Uh, uh, or um, the, the sparse use of music uh, maybe enhances a few moments, but uh, do you think it works si- silent so, this way? I think it works perfectly this way. It just, it, once again, it adds to that documentary feel. And to be honest, every time you watch it, it's only about halfway through, you, you realise there's very little music there at all. And you mm. think, oh yeah. Huh? I, and it, it just it doesn't detract from it at all. If if nothing else, you just you're so focused on those characters. You're so focused on the underlying thing that's going on in the you know the whole Korean situation there that you just don't notice. There's no music whatsoever. Mm. It's it perfectly well works yeah. wonderfully. Yeah, you can you can be like pulse pounding and still. Uh, and and don't use music. This movie kind of proves it. You know, the heist sequence on top of the train, which is a moving train and it looks uh, pretty real, uh, it's absolutely excellent. And uh, we won't spoil the actual content on the ending, but the intercutting between uh, Sonia, between uh, Dong Shik chasing Yong Shik, uh, is absolutely excellent as they are chased by the military or police. And there's some great editing and great um, staged action here as well. So, um, um, I mean, uh, that's uh, uh, even before the iconic scene. That's totally iconic, yeah. And, and they staged some pretty good stunts as well. There's a, there's a, a 
truck crash, if you will, which um, is uh, very well done. Yeah, or even just the simple thing where the guy gets shot in the truck and the other guy gets out, crawls over the, the front of it and swings back in. And the whole time you're watching this and you're like, they probably actually are doing this full it's speed. It's mighty dangerous, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> with no sort of safety regulation or anything at all. And, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, Everybody remembers the final scene and the final drama. Again, we won't spoil what happens, but you can still talk of the iconic nature of the chase scene that ends up uh, as a chase scene in water and then in mud. And it turns also very uh, uh, primal, this uh, final scene. And it's uh, incredibly... uh, The the finale is long as hell. I mean, I think it goes on for a good 20 minutes. And it's almost slow and drawn out, but not slowly paced at all because we get the chase sequence on on wheels and then we get the chase sequence on foot which literally turns slow because they were walking in mud and uh, it all i mean logically you can know you can draw this conclusion listeners it all kind of comes crashing down but we won't uh, say exactly what happens but um, again any um, what is spontaneous thoughts again on this um, iconic end again and is there can you still still see echoes of it uh, today in our films uh, paul all over the place. Um, you know, you, you take any iconic man against man fight scene, and fifty percent of them, they're going to be in, in certainly in Korean cinema in torrential rain with slow sections, fast sections, very stylized. No, nowhere it's to hide. Hard. Sorry, say again. No, nowhere to hide. Would you say that's? Um, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a funny ass movie, but uh, still, I was thinking of the rain and uh, yeah. and the fight to- sequence and that. Totally, nowhere to hide, die bad, you 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 name it. There, it's just there. It's just flower and hell. You look at it and you replace the mist with rain. You replace the slow motion with mud, and it's just flower and hell, flower and hell, flower and hell. The one of the most iconic final fight scenes I've ever seen blows my mind every time I see it. What about you, Rufus? Any spontaneous thoughts at this point about this iconic ending? Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely iconic, and it also kind of brings to my mind as if uh, Shin Sang-ok saw The Wages of Fear before this film, which is the Henri Georges Clouseau, you know, famous film where the guys bring nitroglycerin over to the te- treacherous mountain pass, and there's like there is several scenes of men sort of in mud that every time I see you know uh, Flower in Hell I sort of my brain sort of you know twinges back to Wages of Fear but yeah I totally think Nowhere to Hide uh, and then therefore because it ripped off the entire fight scene from Nowhere to Hide the Matrix uh, Revolutions (laughs) I mean literally the Matrix Revolution that final fight with uh, Agent Smith and Neo in the rain is the nowhere to hide fight, pretty much. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. The Wachowskis um, have a good eye for Asian cinema, yeah. regardless if that's it. I don't remember if that sequence was successful at all, because let's talk of the Matrix sequels. The better, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, so. But yeah, I think it's absolutely iconic and um, just some spectacular black and white filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, the black, having black and white photography during this finale is uh, absolutely enhances it, and I, I, I just love that it builds up, builds up to like a primal, you know, explosion and implosion, if you will. 
uh, which I always uh, I, I like primal violence, you know, where it's uh, not about, you know, uh, setting up the cool blood packs or what have you. It's just, uh, just primal violence. Not action, but violence. Uh, I think that's like a very big part of Korean cinema is this primal violence. I mean, American cinema is extremely violent, of course, but there's a cold distancing when you use guns mm-hmm. versus Korean film is all about knives and fists and you know very much like personal man-on-man contact yeah indeed uh okay tail end of my notes i think we actually um we, i think we all we will summarize this as a big 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 recommendation and uh, go watch it it's free you don't have to feel ashamed of watching it for free on youtube because it's all it's all legal it's all uh, encouraging you to examine korean cinema including this one why not start with this one if you're not familiar with uh, korean cinema why not start with this one and then watch confession of murder or die bad or <laughs> know it died and see all the comparisons <laughs> Uh, so it's all good. We are taking a short break, and after that, it's Save the Green Planet time. Welcome back, and we are discussing Save the Green Planet from 2003, a personal pick of mine, because uh, this movie blew me away when I saw it a few years ago, and it still does, and it's uh, worthy of uh, discussion. Uh, the Korean title is, in Korean, Rufus, would you mind? Chiguru Chikyora. And that literally means, I'm told, Save the Green Earth or Save the Green Planet. A literal title, again, so... It's all it's all easy. Uh, plot from the DVD Beaver's review of the film. It starts with a 7-esque uh, influenced uh, title sequence. Then the character of Lee Byung-gu, played by Shin Ha-kyun, uh, standing and telling his not-so-smart girlfriend. I think that's unfair, actually. Uh, Wang Jong-min, uh, she's... Um, uh, is the actress. Uh, is telling her about how Kang Man-shik, played by Bak Yun-shik, the CEO of the chemical corporation, is in reality from Andromeda and if he doesn't stop him or catch him the world will end in seven days so he goes out uh, wearing a as the plot plot description says a gizmorized minus helmet and a black garbage bag as protection and kidnaps Kang and uh, yeah he puts him through some uh, some tests to reveal if he's an alien or not uh, some torture if you will this all sounds funny it is innocent at the same time, and uh, while at the same, well, while this is going on, obviously this is a procedural movie, and an out of his luck uh, detective Chu, played by Lee Jia Jong, is investigating the disappearance of the important CEO. So you got torture and comedy and drama and uh, procedural, all in one. This is a movie where uh, it's impossible to market this movie. It really was impossible, I think, just because it's uh, you, you can't say it's one genre. So. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, it's written and directed by Jiang Jun-hwan, and apparently the main thrust for his script had to do with watching the Rob Reiner thriller Misery, uh, based on the Stephen King book, and being kind of disappointed personally with the lack of depth in the Katie um, uh, Bates uh, character and uh, Wilkes. He wanted to do a movie about uh, kidnapping, but stated more through the eyes of the kidnapper. And 
that's a full idea already, but he couldn't resist apparently adding the angle about alien invasion, that the character believes uh, aliens are coming and uh, aliens are everywhere. After seeing a website claiming actor Leonardo DiCaprio was in fact an alien sent to conquer Earth by uh, uh, desuding its women. I don't know that word, but apparently he's uh, <laughs> conquering the women, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Some crazy website that I don't know if it exists or not. But uh, uh, it was reportedly a box office flop in Korea, but uh, it made waves critically. And um, uh, I, I, I never re- really got the impression that it was fairly disliked over there. But w- w- if it was disliked critically, it still went home with awards at the Grand Bell Award ceremony in 2003, including Best New Director for Director Young and Best Supporting Actor for our Kidnappy CEO. And uh, th- this was the year of Memories of Murder as well, so it at least one big movie it had to fight <laughs> fight alongside with. And Memories of Murder eventually won Best Movie and Best Director that year, which is uh, probably not um, really undeserved because uh, uh, I remember liking it anyway. But uh, Save, the Green, Save the Green Planet was a favorite on the festival circuit as well. It picked up awards at the Brussels International Festival Festival of Fantasy Film, eh, as well as in Rotterdam International Film Festival and the Moscow International Film Festival. So it became uh, popular and word of mouth spread. And on writer-director Jiang again, born in 1970 and a graduate of the Sung Kyung uh, Kwan University, he dabbled in various jobs in the movie industry, including uh, cinematography for several short films, um, assistant directing. He wrote a movie called Phantom the Submarine in, in 1999, which I should just ask briefly. Was it a good movie? Did it have no. good writing? <laughs> no. No, not at all? <laughs> just my opinion. I think it's a terrible film. Uh, um, I'll, I'll pass over the rivers. Phantom the Submarine, not one of my favorites. Terrible. Absolutely okay. horrible. <laughs> Not worth watching at all. Not even from a comedy no. point of view, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, just total skip. Skip ahead to 2003 then, when Chang debuted as feature director with Save the Green Planet. And uh, since then, he has been a bit quiet. The subsequent credits, uh, there's not a whole lot there, but uh, they have involved uh, him uh, writing and directing the short film Hair from 2004. Which is awesome. Right, good, good. Yeah, it's a great short. Uh, he did a segment for the Omnibus uh, Carmelia called Love for Sale, uh, but in 2013 he's got his second feature lined up uh, with a script by someone called Park Jo Suk. Uh, and it might not have an English title yet, yet because the Wikipedia intro just credited that movie, his second movie, as Hua Yi, uh, which might just stay that way. Maybe it works, uh, just a name. Uh, possibly. It's about a 16-year-old hitman, apparently. Um, a few years ago, I did remember reading that his second project that he wanted to do or had lined up uh, was a superhero movie. That I remember just having a very silly premise, but uh, it might have had, you know, uh, tangents of darkness as well as part of his idea, but uh, yeah. I don't think that uh, happened. Uh, I, I don't think so. I think he's had trouble getting funding, but the Hawaii sounds pretty... Because basically the plot of that movie is that uh, these five gangsters kidnap a boy and raise him in the woods to be like the perfect killer. Mm. So it's sort of a very dark superhero movie. It could be multi-mood as uh, as Save the Green Planet is as well. So uh, looking forward to it and hopefully it's uh, going to be released in uh, in 2013. 
Uh, Jiang is married to actress Moon, Moon Sori of, among other things, Oasis fame, where she played the uh, cerebral palsy stricken Gong Yu and received several uh, awards for that performance. That's the only movie of hers I've seen, but um, lucky, lucky man. A talented man married to a talented actress. So, there you go. Uh, before we go into the movie and availability, uh, any you know, spontaneous short notes on, you know, what do you think of Jiang? Is this a talent that... Uh, you know, you would like to see more of, but it's maybe better that he picks his projects and do them, you know, uh, do them sporadically instead. Well, what do you think, Paul? Uh, I want to see so much more of his stuff that he hasn't done yet. Um, I think he's deeply underrated. Save the Green Planet, Every everything I've read about it, everybody loved it. It, it flopped because of marketing. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember the poster looked more like, hey, is that a Korean mystery man or what's yeah, going totally, on there? Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's a shame that he's been so quiet on the directing front, um, especially when you know his wife ha- has has re- you know completely researched in recent years and doing film after film after film. Um, I, I want to see more. I hope his new film comes together, and I hope he gets funding for m- one m- a m- year. M- Maybe the ideas are so, you know, intricate and quirky that, uh, again, as Rufus mentioned, getting funding from, you know, even the big guns in the industry. I think CJ Entertainment was behind Save the Green Planet, but still, maybe it's not easy to get uh, quirky projects off the ground. Uh, that's, you know. that's, I think that's the case, and I think it's more so the case these days than it ever was. Yeah, but I have to say, like, this is absolutely a case of, like, when this movie was made, uh, was, you know, post Shiri. Uh, so Korean film had like sort of cemented its place in the box office and Gone was sort of the you know 90s not easily packaged as a comedy or a horror movie or an action movie I mean this is a very very dark 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 comedy you know probably one of the darkest Korean comedies other than maybe the humanists um absolutely like morose and you know like how how could this possibly be sold to a Korean audience you know and that reminds me of this year uh, How to Use Guys with Secret Tips which is a brilliant romantic comedy that sort of plays off of 80s US B movies hmm. uh, but uses like very unique visual style uh, it's also a very dark comedy about sexual identity or sexual sort of politics in Korean film industry uh, and I was talking to the director because we had him over for the film festival we showed the film and he was saying that like his original script and the film he originally shot was even darker than the film that we saw because and the the you know his you know company came in and was like we can't release this <laughs> like this is Lote was like oh hell no like this is too weird and so his new movie is going to be just a straight historical drama with no none of this inventiveness and you know he's like but I had to make money and a lot of yeah. a lot of the directors that I really really like and have really been interested in uh, including short filmmakers uh, and sort of the independent directors who have very unique voices, very unique visual styles, never make another movie. Because they just, there's no funding. Mm. And Korea is very much of a, we need sequels, we need easily sellable things. 
you know, we want to push, you know, romantic comedies so we can sell it to China, we can sell it, you know. It's it's very adverse to like Hollywood right now, it's very adverse to people trying new things. Very sad, but okay, we're glad, glad that we had at least one and hopefully two with uh, YG, YG when it does come out. Yes. Uh, but anyway, Save the Green Planet had several DVD releases over the years, including a packed Korean special edition, which got a UK release by Tartan under the Tartan Extreme banner. That included subtitles for all the special features, including the commentary with uh, Jang and uh, Shin Ha-kyun. Yeah. Which is them just laughing at the movie. Really. I, I have the uh, original <laughs> Korean special edition, which came with the soundtrack DVD, as um, well as the uh, green scrubby thing and the little like. Uh, oh man! Did they do menthol rub thing. as well? Yeah, they had like a menthol rub. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! That's a great. Yeah, it was. It came in this big box that you, you know, bought. F- you know, fuck the my sassy girl egg. This is what a Korean special edition <laughs> yeah. is supposed to. Be I mean, between this and uh, what the hell, uh, fighter in the wind, which I have the DVD. It came ra- wrapped in like a, a gi, like an actual like you know karate gi. Mm-hmm. It was. I was like Korean special editions back in the day were epic. Indeed, and uh, there's been a US DVD by Koch Entertainment Distribution as well. So all are in print except the Tartan one, I guess, because uh, I don't think Tartan reprints their DVDs unless I'm uh, wrong about that. Paul. Is Tartan even around anymore? They, so, no. They've rebranded themselves as Palisades Tartan. And ah. the last couple of years they've started up again, and I just I got an email from them earlier on today saying they're they're launching a black collection of all their old... Korean stuff on Blu-ray, starting with Taylor Two Sisters, oh, and, right, okay. and they're they're gonna move through their in, the entire Tartan catalog, and it'll all be re-released on special edition. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I'd so, imagine this would come up at some point. Then I would, I would sincerely hope so. Right on. Okay, moving into the review and my brief opinion of the movie. First, obviously, I love it. I've said that before, but uh, my written piece goes as follows. Any movie with contrasting moods and that prides itself on featuring all of that and, and prides itself on like daring to take that challenge to affect with every mood. That brings me back to Hong Kong cinema who at their worst, but that was kind of awesome, would bring out the comedy and the drama and the thriller and the sex and, uh, and the ghost story, if you will, <laughs> in the same movie. But when doing it with a bit more focus, because that description that I just said rings off filmmaking laziness, you know, just feature it all and hopefully it'll work, you know. Uh, it becomes really interesting when it's done with focus and done right in a slam dunk kind of way. And that's what Save the Green Planet does and is for me. So moving over to you, Paul, for a brief opinion first. Uh, in one word, nuts. It's, it's phenomenal. <laughs> bonkers. It's absolutely <laughs> bonkers. And it works on every level. On comedy level, on thriller level, on Korean violence level, on underlying theme level in fact in terms of the podcast we're doing right at this minute go watch if you haven't seen them go watch flower in hell and then watch save the green planet and imagine flower in hell as this is what the western world is going to be like and look at save the green planet as this is what the western world has become because the themes underneath just scream look what we've done the whole corporate oddness, the whole death of his girlfriend etc, etc his his mental problems claimed entirely on the 
Korean business industry. Um, it doesn't matter whether you get that or just look at it as, wow, this is an amazing film with parodies of US films throughout, or look at it as Korean cinema in a nutshell. See this film, one of my favorite movies. Indeed. Move it on to you, Rufus. Yeah, I mean, I remember first watching this movie, and as and like in the beginning, kidnaps the guy, gets in the car, and all of a sudden this like punk rock version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow yeah. starts. <laughs> and there's like this really creepy like, uh, you know, like the kidnap ransom note style credits where that's all cut out from, and I was just like, holy shit, I've never seen a Korean movie look like this. I mean, and it's a ride trip. from the yeah, it's a ride from the beginning. I mean, obviously, the credit sequences do you know that mad drive in the car where Shin Ha Kyun is just yeah. screaming while he's driving and the camera spinning and somewhere over the rainbow metal, you know. Yeah. So and it's absolutely like it blew me away. And I mean, Shin Shin Ha Kyun is one of my favorite actors, and this movie has serious balls because like the main character isn't even that likable. Like, no one in this movie is very likable, except for maybe the uh, somewhat slow uh, tightrope artist who plays yeah, Su- girl. Su- Suni. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, I was like, wow, this movie, uh, when I saw it, I didn't even know what to think. And then the more you watch it, the more you learn about Korean history, and then you see, like, how this connects in with, like, sort of the the dictatorship period and the you know the move to democ- like democratization and the sort of protest culture in Korea I was just like I was like this movie is not only insane but it's also incredibly intelligent uh, and I think and, people... and and it's not too filled either it's filled no. but still it's not too filled yeah. for some reason and and all of that stuff is very like you know it's not like hit your over the head with it kind of like uh, you know maybe peppermint candy. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's it's there, and there's it's really a movie about trauma and the traumatic past, and I think that this movie was just either too smart or too new and too crazy for audiences when it first came out, and I think it's well deserved cult status, uh, and I wish that there is a better, um, easier accessible at least in America version um, than there is. You can still get it on Netflix, but it's not streaming anywhere. It's not on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And and it really, I mean, it, it, the movie should confuse you and kind of draw any any because it draws you in so many directions, including as you said that Shin Ha Kyun is not likable. He is a madman. This is the ramblings and illustrations of a madman, you know, during these twenty thirty first uh, minutes, you know, which uh, kind of oh, that could be hilarious. He's talking about he believes in aliens and that that aliens uh, made these alien invasion movies I think he mentions that, that those yeah. bastards made those movies, like, <laughs> that's funny it, it, it's not really funny this isn't it <laughs> you know because it you know, e- even with him turning up in the garbage bag in a blinking helmet to to attack this guy that's hilarious the entire scene but you know as quickly as we, you know, we laugh and as quickly as that, uh, as that you know we switch to torture a really do- darkly comical torture and really dark violent nasty torture by a madman out of control completely out of control and you wonder where's this gonna end up you know how many body parts are is gonna you know flash before her screen before he's done you know with uh, with this guy uh, de- deserving or not you know uh, uh, because he is uh, he, he is a bit of a dick 
this uh, CEO, uh, you know, is uh, loud, loud, loud dick, and he is drunk, and he complains about, which is a sneaky line. I won't describe why. Complains about his mother having a birthday every year. <sighs> what a hassle, <laughs> you know. Uh, because uh, if you watch the movie a second time, that line uh, will make a whole, a whole lot more sense. But uh, it's just it just works, you know, and uh, and and you gasp at the same time while while all of this flashes before you because you realize uh, Lee Shinakyun's character this is his thirteenth kidnapping. He's done it twelve times before, and uh, pretty gory each and every time, you know. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's never slowing down either in terms of showcasing his madness you know it's on each time he's shouting a whole lot of the time and that brings up the point of why Shin Ha-kyun why you need an actor like Shin Ha-kyun to just make this over the top acting work because it could have felt wrong and forced in someone else's hands but goddammit, it he strikes such a balance between the big and small and eventually subtle and um, I guess my, my question also is uh, I'm curious about uh, is he still like you think plowing his own, plowing his own path, choosing you know original projects mixed with commercial projects. So what's um, uh, in general? Well, well, how do you see his uh, development? If we start with you, Paul, he, he's, he's doing what he needs to do. He's mixing it up, like you say, commercial project mixed with things that he just likes. From what I can gather, I, I believe he signed on to save the green planet before he'd even read the script when he'd just heard the brief synopsis um, and he's one of those actors that just decides that something is something he wants to be in um, mm-hmm. he can he can pick and choose he does commercial stuff but you know he, he chooses to do stuff like this as well and I'm so glad he does yeah, and I mean I think he I think he like he's very very smart I mean he started off working with Zhang Jin and he's worked in almost most of his movies, including uh, Guns and Talks, which is not the greatest movie, but I still love it. Uh, and then he m- works with people like, you know, uh, Pak Chan-wook, Bong Joon-ho, you know, like, there, there's a very, he's very, very smart with the projects he picks, and, you know, even when they don't quite work out, he's still good in them. Um, and I think he just started out a, a TV series or something. So he's doing some TV to sort of supplement. Uh, and and he's still um, still fairly active on the scene. Yeah, I mean he's he's coming out with you know he was just in Frontline, which was what a couple two years ago, and then he was in he was in Thieves. You know he may have taken a brief break, but he's been doing TV, um, in between doing stuff like Foxy Festival, which was really weird, uh, <laughs> sexual comedy about like upper class. People and their fetishes. Right on. It sounds like blood sucking freaks for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, it's a, one of those actors that is easy to admire. I mean, uh, even though I maybe I've only seen three or four movies, including this and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, but obviously it's. Uh, and, and welcome to Dong Makol, obviously. Yes. Which is uh, fantastic. In. Uh, I, I imagine uh, his. Um, co-lead here is uh, leading lady Huang Jong-min is not a very active actress it looks like one of those maybe this is her first movie as and Sony but uh, she's absolutely amazing as that um, you know uh, she's drawn into this madness and she's supportive of her man who does love her in a weird way but does have a main agenda 
as well. Uh, she's not priority one at all times, despite him, you know, having um, you know fallen in love with her. And yeah. she she's in this hard situation where she's easily manipulated. She's asked to you know do stuff for him, like turn, cr- crank up the electricity during that torture scene. And um, and at one point, you know, he even does admit, amidst his madness, say that she's too frail for this experience anyway. Uh, but she she's absolutely wonderful, and I'm one, I, I'm just have a gut feeling that she was a find, and this is her first movie, and maybe she's not done a movie since then. But I might be wrong. Uh, yeah, I've I've never seen her in anything else. Um, no, not, at, neither have I. Yeah, and I actually quite like the uh, sort of post ending brief sequence that I won't get too far into, but there's mm-hmm. sort of a it, it brings it back like. Yeah. There's a sequence in the very, 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 very end, right before credits roll, that sort of explains a lot of the relationships in the film, um, and why well, she know, becomes um, so ex- obsessed with the doll and things like that. Yeah, and we we have our spoiler section after after yes. the fact, so we we can go into detail if you yeah. like. But uh, I, I admire actors that can be magnetic even when they're sitting down in a chair. And Buck Yunchik uh, is uh, for the major- majority of the time sitting down acting. And um, I, I kept thinking, you know, Christopher Walken in Suicide Kings, who is taking the chair about ninety percent of that movie and just fucking rocks that movie. And uh, Buck is, uh, you know, seventy percent of the movie is in his chair, but otherwise he's. Uh, you know, uh, trying to get loose and has a few fight scenes or what have you. And uh, uh, I, I've I've no idea what he's done before since, but he's acting his heart out and uh, is uh, as physical as Shin Hakun in a way. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a fantastic performance that is so intense that could have gone wrong as well with uh, to, being too over the top. But uh, he switches between his demeanor so goddamn well. I absolutely adore that performance. Um, anything in general you want to say about uh, about this uh, performance, guys? If we stop with you, Paul. It's just it's exactly what it needs to be. And at the end of the day, from my point of view, working next to Shin Hakyun, he couldn't help but. And he's almost nude, really nude as well. He's acting almost nude as well, which is you know, wow. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, which which works on so many levels. I mean, he, he's he's a huge, huge actor. Um, you know, you look at his filmography, he's done guts of a hundred films, you know, President's Last Bang, Like a Virgin, uh, you know, it's just, it's endless, and he's been great in virtually everything. I think the last thing I saw him in was I Am a King, which is, I think it was 2000, 2011, 2012, maybe. Um, but, you know, he's always bankable, he's always really worth watching and that may well be why he was chosen for Save, Save the Green Planet but it is Shin Hakyun that pulls him up you couldn't be sat next to him and not give a phenomenal performance because he's phenomenal yeah, I, I love every mood he goes through uh, some may be calculated uh, but, you know but it's uh, you know it's equally you know scary commanding and pathetic and uh, and obviously it's in in uh, pain throughout the movie, and I imagine it was not super comfortable to be uh, uh, in in that chair all the time during filming. Uh, it's just one of those things where it seems comfortable, but probably isn't very yeah. uh, to to be restricted that way. But uh, he he does it uh, phenomenally well. Yeah, I mean he's uh, he's one of my favorite actors. I think. I mean, and he's brilliant in this film. 
along with all you know i really like him even in the not so great art of fighting uh which is not a very great movie but he's great in it and you know he's in taja the high rollers the big swindle you know he's in all of these great films he's been acting since the 70s and he's sort of known for like having near expressionless face a face that does not give that much expression and so that might have played into why he was chosen for this film Hmm. you know because he's very much you know like almost alien in terms of emotional facial acting um but yeah i think he's Brilliant. I mean, I think the trio works so well in this film. Yeah, yeah, obviously there's a lot of scenes in that cellar set, which is obviously full of, we, we won't list all the design, obviously, but the, obviously such a great job by the production design team. Uh, you know, uh, the makeup people that uh, did all these gruesome, even comedic gruesome torture bits, like when they rub his feet with uh, with the mental rub but before they have actually uh, removed some skin from his uh, from his uh, feet, and that looks just ah oh, man. And uh, like like the sign where you see that um, jar of uh, teeth that uh, Leah has been keeping, uh, uh, it's just oh man. And uh, but but then a switch happens again. We won't spoil it now, but he. he Jan Junhuan does it so com- in such a confident way that all of a sudden we get this insight into Lee's dark past, you know, what may be the catalyst for this madness. Well, rather, what is the catalyst of this madness? And we get illusions, you know, akin to a horror movie here. And he really does get to our emotional core in a big, bad way throughout the movie via this insight into the trauma, uh, via the. Uh, there's actually sort of a breakup between, you know, uh, Suri and. Um, and Lee, and uh, all wrapped in this gruesome, traumatic, dark, um, and romantically like heart wrenching, all wrapped in you know a beautiful score. But a lot of this is centered around somewhere over the rainbow in the normal speed, so to say. It's not the punk version. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It it just gets to me thoroughly. This movie. So, do you think there's a weak? link in any transition to moods here if you will Paul or does it all come together despite switching so so hyperactively almost I think the switching is what makes this film what it is you know anybody that starts to get into Korean cinema will come across this whole genre merging and Save the Green Planet is just it's it's a checkbox list it's just it does it all It, it does it all perfectly and I have no I'm not going to turn around and say that bit doesn't work, that bit doesn't, it does it perfectly and it, it switches light and dark at the right times to really offset whatever mood has been leading up to it. Um, phenomenal, nothing bad. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 re- it's a really upsetting upsetting film too, for real, you know, uh, that yeah. you get invested in Lee's trauma, you know, because it's, it's a really, really sad story and... Um, and um, I don't know, I don't have much more notes until we do the spoiler section, so I'm just going to list uh, the, the funniest bit in the movie, because it's a hilarious movie as well. When uh, when the detective Chu is at uh, Lee's house, he's uh, trying to hide his tracks because, um, you know, he's al- almost found out. Although I think Chu kind of reads that this is, you know, uh, he's dealing with a madman here. But at one point, the TV that is... Um, 
shows uh, Kang uh, lying on the floor, you know, it's a shot of the cellar, is on and he tries to distract you by saying, Oh my god, look at UFO outside! <laughs> and they both go out, huh? And the wonderful delivery by Shin Hakun afterwards, it's disappeared now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a good like cover up of him you know he obviously um, shuts off the TV with his foot uh, while they're looking out the window but it's it's the dumbest silliest thing in the movie and I absolutely love it to bits and, um, and and throughout this you know after the sequence the switch happens again you know it turns really really serious and, and uh, it's all it's seamless very seamless um, so, so I suppose at the end of my non non spoiler notes, I'll just leave it to you guys if you want to share anything in particular non spoilery at this time. If we start with you, Paul, any if favorite you, jokes? <laughs> my favorite moment in the whole film is the B moment, um, where the cops trying to, you know, get to Byungu, blah 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 blah, and. Uh, he gets a load of bees thrown at him. I'm not going to spoil it by saying what happens, but that is the moment that, for me, that sums up Save the Green Planet. It's just utterly bonkers. Wonderful. I suppose our favorite moment, by the way, of the choose is early on, early in the film, where he um, he uh, eats, he gladly like eats and shows the effects of uh, the fictional uh, blue pill that uh, the character of Lee uh, takes, and he, he puts it in a glass of alcohol and says to the rookie cop that is uh, following him and admiring him, "This will kick in in five seconds, like look." And then five, four, three, two, one, <laughs> and he's still a pretty good detective. But it's a bit, he's a bit um, out there and worn, and uh, he's demoted to uh, cooking. It seems like in the in the police station. Uh, but the moving over, over to you, Rufus. Any particular non-spoiler moment you want to share with us? Yeah, I'll have to triple the the entire, basically the entire sequence with the cop, you know, coming in pretending he's a hiker to like get into the house to you know investigate is just absolutely brilliant and there's the right amount of tension and suspense with comedy you know and like there's that scene where he wakes up he wakes up in the night and he's like where where'd he go and he goes down to Shin Hakun's like secret workshop and you think oh shit he's going to discover you know the you know and then he's going to get it but then it turns out that Shin Hakun's just working on this weird UFO satellite art piece <laughs> you know and it's just like that whole that whole sequence is just so great um, leading up to the B sequence I mean it's just the whole thing is like a perfect sort of short film within a film Yeah, such a confident director I, I don't know how I just I'm awe inspired and kind of like wow a first time director could squeeze this out of him you know and uh Maybe he's squeezed all of it out of him and had to take several years break and try and write something, you know, uh, in a focused way. I, I don't know, but uh, you don't do Save the Green Planet 2 and 3 within a span of three, four years, if you know what I mean, or do this kind of original material like, quickly. If you do that, I, I, I'm inspiring as well, <laughs> obviously. Um, but you know what? We... Uh, we are finishing off the show, and after again the end music, we will do a little bit on um, uh, spoiler discussion on Save the Green Planet because um, it, it makes sense to kind of um, talk of um, talk of uh, the movie all the way up until the end. So uh, 
leave it at that and uh, we've not decided yet on the next episode but I'm still keen on striking a balance between importance personal favorites fan favorites that are also important so we'll see but uh, a combination of a newer one and something from the Kofa channel might be uh, a good idea you know it's a treasure trove and uh, we'll just see uh, when we when this trio get together again what uh, what uh, what the picks are so I'm, I'm open to anything and I'm very glad I wouldn't have found Flower in Hell by myself obviously I didn't know uh, a thing about it before so I'm very glad that you guys have brought this to my attention so and, and hopefully to a lot of people's attention uh, but okay some brief contact information before we sign off and have a little bit more combo after that so this has been What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire Network this show and the bonus episodes podcastonfire.com Email for feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash POF network is our main page that you can like. We would appreciate that. That, And you can also use the discussion group that we have set up. Uh, just follow the link on that page or type in podcast on fire network in the Facebook search box and uh, join the discussion group. Uh, tweet us at twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. My writing, non Korean writing. Although I've, I've written about some movies set in Korea, some old uh, martial arts movies and some IFD movies, some uh, Richard Harrison movies that actually uses Korean action movies as its source. So it's uh, vaguely Korea over at SoGoodReviews.com. And I also do video reviews at SleazyKVideo.com. And I tweet at Twitter.com forward slash SoGoodReviews. What's Korean Cinema is on iTunes, and if you subscribe and um, if you like the show, please leave a little star rating and comment if you have the time. And you can stream us over at Stitcher Radio. Application is available to your iPhone, iPad, Android, or BlackBerry. And just type in uh, What's Korean Cinema, and that will get you the option to add the show to your favorites. And again, the URL for uh, Cineawesome, Rufus? Uh, Cineawesome.com. Right, and uh, visit that and see what the developments are during the next uh, three, four, five months, uh, and uh, yeah, and and follow the podcast and all of that. So, and I enjoy your picks uh, when, when you discuss, you know, uh, childhood favorites of mine, you know, Master of the Universe, Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah. Turtles, or whatever. So, it's, uh, yeah, we have uh, we have some good episodes coming up right now. We're uh, we're about to record a uh, Sword of Doom and the Proposition double feature sort of going off of totally nihilistic films <laughs> yes <laughs> all right and again hangol celluloid for reference sake what's the url to that poll uh celluloid.com and you can find me on facebook at facebook.com slash celluloid and i'm on twitter at at celluloid excellent so this is the main show that uh, we're, we're signing off now but uh, those of you who have seen the movie and are interested in um, Save the Green Planet that is and are interested in our views on uh, the final 25 minutes if you will stick uh, stick with us uh, after the ending music and we'll discuss for a few minutes more but uh, this has been Kennedy and with me was um, Paul Quinn so say bye buddy see you guys later and Rufus Duran later later
So, welcome back. Spoiler time! Spoiler time! What, what happens at the end of Save the Green Planet? Well, if you've seen the movie, you know that uh, they did exist. The aliens. They did exist. And uh, I, I'm so baffled at how Jung managed to be feature this heart-wrenching drama and still feature a little bit of silliness throughout all of this because what it all leads up to is obviously we get two montages I mean one uh, at the very end as we talked about before but this heart-wrenching montage of his childhood trauma you know his good and bad times as a child losing his father to um, mental illness I believe uh, and his, him beating up in ju- beaten up in juvenile detention losing his girlfriend you know it's such a sad life with so many demons and uh, I guess at the end when the aliens do blow, you know uh, blow up the planet you know there's maybe some obviously must be a, a relief but uh, my, my view on the aliens obviously thought the humans were hopeless and uh, truth, truth be told uh, looking at you know the statistics they probably were but I don't think Lee was hopeless it was just part of the chain of reactions that made the planet hopeless if you will um, uh, because you in a sense existed in him at one time and he might come off as unlikable but there's a whole lot of things that just been done to him that uh, kind of is hard to uh, revert and um, that's uh, why it is such a sad movie and within all of this uh, why I think it's silly within all of this is uh, the alien design is absolutely brilliant Uh, they look uh, they don't look threatening the aliens uh, in their uh, prince gear and their long ears and their um, the dots in their faces and I think that's entirely Intentional to um, to actually just uh, confirm that he was right. They look exactly like that, talk exactly like that, communicate telepathically through their hair, and he was all right despite them looking uh, the way they do. So uh, I, I, it absolutely affected you know my, I laughed, but man, I was so sad at the end of the movie. Uh, really, 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 really sad. So uh, perfect ending. I mean, I, I, I think uh, it deserved that ending. So I guess uh, if. Uh, if we go one by one, uh, if we start with you, Paul, uh, did it deserve to actually ha- have this ending and uh, mix, continue and continue to mix uh, the laughs and uh, the sadness that it did? Very much so. I mean, after the, the the main film ends, I always like to think of that end section, that final thing, as almost Korean cinema in itself again. He does that little funny alien bit, then the destroying of the world, and that last really melodramatic, really sad TV screen as the credits roll, it just sort of sums up the whole Korean cinema of the time, the whole whatever mix you've got, you're going to end with melodrama, and he ends it so beautifully and so poignantly mm. that it just it finishes the movie and uh, gotta credit the um, score by the way I, didn't, I forgot to do that Lee Dong Jun uh, did the score which is uh, absolutely beautiful obviously a lot of it centers around Somewhere Over the Rainbow but uh, uh, the, the very very melodramatic score uh, works perfectly I mean it's not over the top it's there but it, it is reliant on a whole orchestra and a lot of strings and it tucks at you but for real as well it's not um, it's not dead drama without the music it's obviously um, uh, absolutely um, affecting and uh, yeah and it adds to the whole thing as well, yeah. So, what about you, Rufus? Uh, did it um, shock you when it happened when you saw it the first time? Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> it was pretty shocking, but then it's like kind of the same. It's the same sort of situation. I guess we're in spoiler territory, so I'll just oh, yeah, spoil yeah, yeah. another film. 
uh, like the ending to Bad Guy, the Kim Ki Duck movie, mm-hmm. where it's essentially like for Kim Ki Duck, it's a happy ending, you know, where they go off and he's running a prostitution thing out of the back of his truck, which is a the happiest ending you could get in that film. But <laughs> like, you know, like I think that there is a strong argument that it's totally, it's totally like the the imagination almost of the main characters in both of those films and my especially i think it's more explicit in bad guy that he's dead like the main character dies and then the like the last like sort of 20 minutes of the film is his like dying fantasy uh and then this movie there's still i think enough question that the ending could be him like sort of dying and this is just sort of his brain as he's dying working out like I didn't live for nothing and the people I killed were really aliens and you know okay good point good point yeah but I mean I thought like when you watch it you're like holy shit (laughs) <laughs> because uh, the, the wonderful thing is that it uh, the, the, that shot when when that is a crane shot that goes up from the cop car ending credits right about now yeah. you know oh lasers wow yeah <laughs> you know you you gotta get you, you get giddy but when I watched that like, it did it you know it dared to do it <laughs> so uh, and still dared to continue uh, to be um, uh, melodramatic. Uh, after that point and uh, what a way to get the audience to sit through the ending credits by the way yeah I mean uh, it's just like and I think I think like the end is just so bittersweet with like the whole flashback to through his life and you see all of the toys that uh, the like the, the you know the alien finds in his lair you know he finds this drawer of toys as he's going through everything yeah. And it's kind of like in the movie, you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever, a weird drawer of toys. But then at the end, it's like these things are sort of like connected to all of the trauma he's gone through mm-hmm. throughout his life, which is directly, all of these traumas are directly related to Korea's traumas of modernization. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, regardless if you pick up on that or not, it's uh, it really. Um it, it, it really uh, you do become sad when watching it but uh, you know at the same time you get really giddy that you watched the movie that dared to do all of these things and it didn't feel too uh, it managed to fit it on under two hours how about, how about that didn't need two and a half hours to feature this carousel you know 117 I think <laughs> uh, my copy runs so um, so good on you Jung uh, so um, yeah that's uh, pretty much the end of it unless you have any other spoiler notes uh, guys want to spoil some other movies <laughs> who is Kaiser Sosa <laughs> I'm, just, no, I'm just kidding <laughs> uh, but I suppose uh, we're done so um, uh, thank you everybody for um, listening uh, all the way through if you did so uh, signing off again so bye bye